Have you heard? 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 Welcome to another edition of Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, I'm not sure you can tell, but I'm a little under the weather. You're sitting right next to me and I cannot get enough Purell onto my hands right now. (laughs) Well, I just want to say that should the very worst happen and should I... It looks like the very worst is about to happen. I'm going to slowly back away from the microphone. Should I expire? I want you to know that I'm leaving this podcast to you, and I really hope that you'll take it and run with it. Can I, can I rename the podcast? You look kind of eager. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the School Quality Power Hour. I'm Jack Schneider, your host. <laughs> what do you think of that? I think it's great. For now, though, I live and breathe on. And <laughs> Breathing and breathing <laughs> awfully close to me right now. Our topic today is about what's happened to the black teaching force. Jack, you probably saw a few weeks ago that there was a study that came out. A big study. A big study, and it really it got a lot of attention. And I imagine that this is something very familiar to you when a piece of research you put out just really takes the country by storm. I, I've taken the country by storm fewer times than that. Uh, so so I'm not familiar. In this case, some researchers looked at a huge uh, database of, of black students from North Carolina, 100,000, and they found that for these students, having just one black teacher in third, fourth, or fifth grade ended up having a huge impact on them later on, much later on. It meant they were less likely to drop out of high school. They were more likely to think about going to college. It was a big deal study. And it's interesting because it's one of those studies that reaffirms something that seems kind of commonsensical to people who have experienced this. And so if you speak with uh, students of color about the importance of having had a teacher who understood them uh, from that perspective uh, or who could serve as a role model for them, uh, suddenly it makes a lot of sense about why it would be so important to even just have one teacher who looked like you. So so this was great. Big study, important findings, but there's a downside. There's always a downside. It turns out that in the last, you know, over the past two decades, the number of black teachers, particularly in, in urban areas that have the highest concentration of black students, has been sinking like a stone. And I'm talking like significant drops in the numbers. In Chicago, 40%. New Orleans and Washington, D.C., close to 25%. Philly, 18%, even in Boston, where where we are, they've seen a big drop in the number of black teachers. And even though that drop is precipitous in the last uh, generation, uh, it is actually in keeping with a long-term historical trend over the past 100 years. Can you you tell where I want to go? Jack is ready to head into the time machine. But first, I just have to set the stage a little bit here. I gave Jack the assignment of giving us a brisk tour through history of of how the black teaching force has fared over time. And and I showed up today and Jack is surrounded by a cascade of notes. And when I asked him what all this was, I was told that... It's the manifestation of genius. Without further ado, Jack, please climb into the time machine. I've gone way back this time. And uh, we are in the antebellum south, uh, although for all intents and purposes, you could be north as well, uh, because... 
public education and formal education was largely denied to blacks, whether they were north or south, although obviously there was a, a more sort of pernicious uh, effect in the south that was connected to, uh, to the institution of slavery. And so you have a group of people that was desperate um, to educate itself um, and without a really great capacity to do so. And so in many cases they were reliant on white teachers um, Although there was a significant number of black teachers that, uh, in the case of those from the North, went down to the South uh, to, to educate emancipated slaves, or in the case of uh, those who had gained literacy, uh, who wanted to become teachers and sometimes were denied, as I'll talk about in a second. Um, but even from uh, day one uh, of public education for blacks in the South, and I'll focus primarily on the South here, uh, there was a, a focus on the importance of Black teachers uh, at Black National Convention in 1853 noted that white teachers' whole tendency, and I'm quoting here, is to change the black student, not his condition, to educate him out of his sympathies. Uh, and in 1867, a parent observed a black teacher could inspire black students such as no words could describe. Uh, and so what you see here is a, a couple of things going on which continue uh, today, um, although the, the latter being more prominent than the former. Um, and so the, the first, uh, which is, again, less prominent today, is uh, just differential treatment of students by white teachers. The second, which we do continue to see today, is the importance of role modeling and the importance of understanding student identity. Um, and that was certainly something... Uh, from the the time of emancipation, even you know, as that 1853 quote illustrates, prior to emancipation, something that we see. Um, so a, a lot of the the teacher corps uh, was coming from uh, organizations like the American Missionary Association, uh, and many blacks applied for these teaching jobs, and in many cases were denied. Uh, sometimes because they lacked qualifications, oftentimes simply because they were black. Um, but of course, the qualifications piece was was a big issue, right? Because uh, few high schools at the time uh, in the North, and certainly none in the South, would accept black students, uh, and fewer colleges were available to them. Uh, and so, you know, the issue of teacher training was a really big one uh, by 1920. And this is after uh, there has been an expansion of high schools for black students and uh, the founding of a number of historically black colleges and universities. Even in 1920, uh, in Virginia, 3% of black teachers held professional certificates. Um, and often the teacher training programs at uh, black colleges like Tuskegee or Hampton uh, were really not preparing teachers for the intellectual work of teaching. Uh, and so the, the, you know, the Booker T. Washington model there uh, had a, a pretty limiting uh, effect on the growth of uh, a black teacher force. And so this brings us, you know, a bit closer to the present here. Um, and I'm going to skip ahead to the the landmark Brown uh, versus Board desegregation case in 1954. Um, and there's a, a particularly tragic irony here, which is that desegregation uh, was it was a good thing for everyone, but it turned out not for black teachers because segregation had guaranteed spots for black teachers. And these, of course, were good jobs. And this is coupled with another tragic irony for black teachers, which is that 
as uh, the the minimum credentials to be a teacher continue to rise. So today it's possession of a college diploma. Uh, And as opportunities for blacks in America continued to open up, blacks had many more opportunities if they had uh, a college diploma than simply teaching school. Um, This is something that actually parallels uh, the decline in, uh, in the teacher labor force of women where previously uh, you know, women had very few opportunities professionally and uh, as more opportunities opened up for them we actually saw fewer women going into teaching. Um, and so uh, in the case of black teachers what we see today uh, and this brings us all the way up to the present is that we have a real pipeline problem uh, and it's one that self-reinforces and maybe that's something that we'll get into in a little bit uh, where we have a negative feedback loop of students not having role models as a result of that, not desiring to teach and possibly succeeding less in school, therefore not gaining the credentials required to teach, uh, not having any desire, and then the two of those things keeping them out of the profession, which of course has an impact on the next generation. Jack, I want to commend you on, I think that was your single best trip into the time machine so far. It was It was fast. It, that, was a, that was a fast we trip. We covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, but the flux capacitor is strained right now. Uh, well, we're going to get, we have an expert joining us now. Uh, Taranda White studies the sort of contemporary version of the problems that Jack just described. So let's get Taranda on the phone. Welcome back. We're joined now by a very special guest. Terenda White is an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Terenda, we have just had a great tour through history by my co-host Jack Schneider. And I want you to to start right up at the present. You're here because we're talking about this this study um, on the huge impact that teachers of color have on students of color. And yet I learned from your research that so often the efforts to improve the schools that these students attend start from the point of view that the teachers themselves are the problem. Explain that. There are so many tragic ironies happening um, because all of the reforms that we've put in place and that, you know, can include, I mean, they're all intended, you know, to sort of raise achievement and improve equity, particularly for historically disadvantaged kids. Um, but the way they've been carried out does imply somehow that the the, the root of problems for, for kids of color were the people in place in those schools, right? So closing a school, there's a great quote by Jelani Cobb in the Mother Jones article about the Philadelphia schools. And, you know, he, he says very eloquently that to close a school implies that the problem was inward, you know, that the problem were the people there and not, you know, reforming the funding or the segregation or um, the other kinds of resources that we know are important for achievement. But, like, to close a school and to sort of massively sort of fire teachers or dismiss teachers does imply a problem or an obstacle for achievement for black kids where the teachers there who are overwhelmingly black. And yet this study and a lot of research overwhelmingly tells us that blackness was not the obstacle or black teachers were not the obstacle to achievement for black kids. So I think we're going in, like the research tells us one thing, but our reforms are doing something different 
that is actually removing the most important resource for kids of color, which were the teachers, um, who often actually chose to work in some of the highest needs places and had been asking for and organizing for better resources, um, those teachers um, decades later were framed as a problem, even though we recruited them to work in hard-to-staff schools. I mean, that's another problem there, too. So, and, and this is not the first time, you know, the history that we know is that oftentimes there's an implied sense that black teachers are not as capable or competent to teach black kids. I mean, when we close the black schools um, to sort of create that integration, I mean, that burden was disproportionately on black principals and black teachers. And so we're learning an old lesson again that I think is very painful, which is that we are sort of making vulnerable the most important resource for kids of color. You've been talking about black teachers leaving the profession involuntarily, meaning their schools closed or turn around, et cetera. But we also know that they they leave the classroom at much higher rates than their white counterparts. Can you help us understand why that is? So that's the big question, and I think we have to unpack that. The, the, the most solid, most robust data that we're getting from qualitative interviews and from surveys are the, the conditions inside the schools, right? So a lot of teachers, um, Education Trust did a great study on where they looked at, they interviewed 150 African-American teachers from across different areas. And overwhelmingly, teachers of color in schools often feel as though they are seen um, as disciplinarians. And so they sort of are, um, they're sort of, uh, targeted to have students who they might find to be more troublesome or lower performing, and they're they're not recognized for their subject matter competency or their pedagogy. So a lot of them feel as though they're there as um, disciplinarians. That's a problem. Also, even if they um, are doing really well with their students and have great rapport, great classroom management, their students are doing well. A lot of those teachers still don't feel as though that, in fact, their voices are heard. So they're not able to leverage what they're doing well into decision-making that's important for the school. And that could be decision-making around a lot of different things. Um, Also, some teachers just don't have the autonomy that they want. Um, And that's, you know, if if, if they feel like they're competent and they want to be creative and even leverage their cultural knowledge about their kids, they just feel restrained increasingly, especially if they're in districts that are relying on very scripted forms of curricula. So a lot of this is hard, you know, it, it's harder to quantify, but the working conditions and the feeling as though I have a voice in how teaching and learning happens in this school, a lot of teachers of color don't feel very included. Um, and that's the voluntary uh, levers. I think another dimension of this is thinking about teachers who feel as though they had no choice. Um, but to leave, either because there's a lot of restructuring. So their entire school might have been closed, or I mean, there are a lot of other forces that create the quote-unquote turnover that could be voluntary and involuntary. But it, we have to step inside the schools and ask teachers what's happening in terms of relationships with their colleagues and their school leaders. Dorinda, one of the things that jumped out at me as I was listening to, you, listening to you was thinking about the importance of a critical mass of teachers. Um, you know, so some of the research on uh, student diversity indicates that 
um, you know, there there's a sort of tipping point at which students begin to feel like there are enough folks like them that they are not tokens, or they will not be singled out, or they will not have to speak for you know people of their race or uh, you know their sexual orientation, etc. Um, and you know, I'm wondering if you have seen any programs uh, that have tried to bring a critical mass of teachers of color uh, into schools so that um, they do feel that their voices will be heard, uh, so that they don't feel like uh, they have sort of disproportionate responsibility for particular things. That is a very interesting parallel. I mean, we know that when students of color feel isolated, um, or it's one thing to a numerical minority. It's another thing to just be like the only <laughs> black person or person of color in a classroom and you're constantly feeling that weight of speaking on behalf of an, of an entire race. Um, and that's a very interesting parallel to me to teachers of color because uh, one of my good colleagues, Travis Bristol, writes about the differences in how we distribute teachers of color across schools in a district, right? So, what does it mean to be the only black male teacher in a school? Um, he calls them the loners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is a very different experience than having what you would say is a critical mass. Um, in, in Colorado, for example, a really great study um, by Bailey, um, Sharon Bailey, she did a study. Uh, there's only about, there's a small percentage of black teachers in Colorado, particularly in Denver, and they were all sort of just like, distributed across the schools where they were like one or two and they felt less able to challenge like discipline policies or practices that, that practices that 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 um that they viewed as discriminatory. When they were the only it felt as though they would have to carry the weight of that all by themselves and they felt more vulnerable. So so how we distribute them is very important. And I haven't really seen targeted and deliberate attempts to cluster teachers of color in particular schools so that they have a community. Trenda, listening to you, I was imagining uh, a young person in school uh, and imagining what that young person's experience is like as he or she is crafting his or her understandings of what school is and what teaching is. And, and of course, we know that teaching is unlike any o- other occupation in that uh, people observe it up close for 180 days a year for uh, yeah, you know approximately yeah. 13 years before deciding to go into it, and you know that comes with some problems, of course. So I'm thinking of uh, you know the the kind of recruitment that happens uh, of students into the teaching profession um, that is not uh, controlled in any way, that it's not. Conducted in any intentional fashion, where we send a message to students: here's what teaching is like. This is what schools are like. Here's what teachers look like. Um, and you know, I'm thinking about black students, for instance, who are more likely to attend a school where school looks like, um, you know, uh, a little bit like prison sometimes because your mm. movement is being controlled and your body is being controlled, and uh, there is harsh discipline. Uh, for acting out of uh, 
you know, whatever the conduct code is. Um, where testing rules the day, uh, where teachers often do not have autonomy, where teachers are in some cases reading from scripts because they have had their freedom to teach taken away from them, uh, where teachers oftentimes don't look like them, where teachers turn over rapidly, where people don't have strong relationships with grown-ups. Um, this is in contrast to the way that some of my students who go on to become teachers talk about what they think teaching is and what they think school is. These are students who have seen school as a sort of magical place yeah. that you never want to leave, that you want to get back to as quickly as possible. <laughs> and a magical job where you have these really close relationships with young people and you get to mentor the next generation. I'm so glad you, you said that because I think there's a false there's a false separation between what teachers need and what students need. And sometimes, you know, uh, when teachers talk about working conditions and they talk about the things that they need to make that profession um, enjoyable for the long term. It is almost framed sometimes as very selfish, but it's actually important because if teachers aren't enjoying what they do, our students see that. Like if they feel um, overworked or, or, or sort of teaching to a script that they don't even, that, that doesn't animate them, those things make it hard for us to recruit students because they've not, I mean, they've watched teachers be, you know, sort of, <laughs> burden and stress and all of that. And I think um, we don't present the best space for what, what the beauty of teaching and, and the profession is all about. And I think to your point about the prison-like nature of some of the schools is very important. I'm working on a piece called, um, an article called Teaching and Policing. And it's actually unfortunate because historically, you know, black teachers were viewed um, almost like, you know, the preachers in the community. I mean, they were the leaders. I mean, uh, teaching for liberation and community uplift. I mean, it was a very sort of valued and esteemed thing. Um, but the culture and climate of teaching that's so focused on um, getting results and data, like it's like a test score production type of thing or test proctoring and teaching to scripts. Um, there's some interesting survey work where you ask kids about what do you view how do you view police and then how do you view teachers? And there's like a weird sort of symbiosis happening in terms of how they're trying to make sense of are teachers here to uplift me or are they here to control me? And they, and they feel very, like the same practices that are happening in communities that are experiencing zero tolerance policies. I mean, some of that same mentality of no excuses infiltrates the way we micromanage kids inside school. Um, so, and there's a really great uh, doctor student at CU Boulder. I'm just going to make a plug. She's working also on that in terms of connecting the dots between the sort of zero tolerance and no excuses and thinking about what, what does that mean for kids of color who are in those kinds of spaces and then we want to recruit them into the teaching force when they feel as though they survived school. School wasn't a place where they thrived. It was a place that they sort of survived and it didn't feel very affirming to their humanity and dignity. Um, I think that's very important to link what teachers are telling us about the culture of the profession and why it needs to be improved and working conditions and connect that to the well-being of kids and our ability to recruit students in this profession. While you've been talking, I've been watching my co-host Jack Schneider just look sadder and sadder. And Trenda, I'm wondering if there, can you give us something to feel good about? Are there programs or approaches you've you've seen that are doing something different? There are some really great initiatives. I support um, initiatives 
here in Colorado, um, one of which is called Pathways to Teaching. It is a high school-based um, uh, recruitment and preparation initiative. It's a grow-your-own model where they actually um, target and, and sort of reach out to kids of color in high school, their junior and senior year. And then they offer like an urban, an intro to urban education where they actually critique the very schools and conditions that, that they're in. Like that they get to sort of say what has worked well and what hasn't and, and, and why. And they get to sort of think through how might I be able to improve my community through teaching and even sort of become a change agent as a teacher that could be different from maybe what I've experienced. So, so, so like all the problem posing the very issues that they've experienced and then to think and present teaching as a way, a path to actually change that. Trenda, I want to ask you about teacher training programs that sound really like the complete opposite of what you just described. And I'm thinking about the these fast track programs that are taking the world by storm, the Teach for Americas, the relays. And what's interesting is that increasingly they sell themselves as a response to the urgent need to diversify the teaching core. But when you ask them about how long their teachers stay in the classroom, they get really quiet. Um, I know you recently did a, um, a segment on marketing and market-based school reforms, right? I think that those programs, the alternative um, teacher ed programs like the Teach for America uh, Pathways or, or Relay, what they do is market well. I mean, the marketing and the branding. So for me, and I and I actually am okay with saying, I feel so hoodwinked, like I was bamboozled. I totally drank the Kool-Aid and went for those kinds of programs because they had marketed um, their message really well, meaning don't you care about injustice and inequality? Come be a come join. And it wasn't until you're in these spaces that you realize that um, veteran teachers of color are not really a part of the structure of those programs and, and sort of uh, placing it as a community-based sort of thing where there's longevity and sustainability. Those kinds of, or, or staying in the profession for the long haul, those messages faded, but those things weren't really part of my experience, at least. And when I interview other core members and people who are coming through, they're trying to make sense of the contradictions between the message and the marketing, which is so really savvy, and the actual structure of the program that actually contradict uh, sustainability and diversity and caring about the the other teachers of color in, the, in that community or in those schools, actually. So... Um, I think we have to get better um, as, you know, at traditional school of ed and university-based teacher education programs. We have to, first, we have to lower costs because I think that's another thing as well. Um, teaching and getting credentials is costly, especially if you are a first-gen college student, if you are a mid-career changer. I mean, we have to lower costs, but we also have to get better at calling out the contradictions of those who market themselves as sort of social justice oriented and the structures that actually contradict that. And then we also have to have a marketing, we have to have a message as well. Like those of us who care about the profession and those who who are teaching over the long haul, I mean, all your own programs, residency models, we have to really be out there recruiting. I think, uh, Jack, you were saying earlier, we don't systemically, we don't deliberately recruit. And those other programs actually spend millions of dollars on doing so. And um, I, I just think we have to, to, to do that. 
um, because we're not going to have them come to us, you know, these really talented young people who are in college majors and not quite sure what they want to do. And then when it's too late, they decide, oh, maybe teaching should be free because I saw a really great poster and a really great commercial from such and such. So, you know, we have to really rethink how we get our message out. Those of us who are thinking about research-based, longevity, professionally, high-quality high teacher preparation. What sort of ways are we actively recruiting kids? And then how can we actually also call out the contradictions of those um, who who might be marketing social justice teaching and, and ethnic-oriented programs but are in many ways harmful to the communities that they're in? So we have to do both, I think. such a fan of Terenda White. I think she's she's so smart and and I just love that interview. But she did one thing that really made me happy. <laughs> what is that? Well, she was our first guest to reference another episode while being interviewed on this episode. Which means that we're going to send her a t-shirt. And I think we should make that a, a requirement for all future guests. And then you don't get a t-shirt anymore for that because when we use our budget for a t-shirt, I think that cashes out our budget for the year. And I think that cashes out this episode. Well, I've got a surprise for you, Jennifer. I'm going to make one quick time machine trip before we sign off. The year is 1873 and I'm in New York City. And uh, I I just wanted to, to bring us back to the influence of the past on the present and to say that in 1873, um, New York City abolished compulsory segregation in its schools and uh, then brought black students into schools with white students, which uh, ended up closing down uh, the all-black schools and ended up in uh, New York City letting go its black teacher force. Uh, the black students ended up attending white schools with white teachers. And it would be 22 years, uh, so it wasn't until 1895 that another black teacher was hired in New York City. And you can see that the impact of the past on the present is going to be pretty powerful when you say that in the, the city with the largest public school system in this country, uh, that an entire generation went by without having had one black teacher in their classrooms, that that was going to shape the way that they thought of school uh, as they grew up and was going to influence uh, their decisions about what careers to enter into, um, and that that, that influence would, uh, would carry on. And so, as William Faulkner said, the past is not dead. It's, it isn't even past. And as Jennifer Berkshire is saying, that's it for another episode of Have You Heard? I'm Jack Schneider. Until next time. <laughs>